you read something like the book of Revelation and you're tripping over Enoch constantly. This character that we see in the book of Enoch, this son of man, it's this messianic figure. Uh, he's also called the elect one, the letter of Jude. He's using this quote about this Enochic son of man figure and he's using it for Jesus. And Mark almost didn't make it. It wasn't very popular, so they almost didn't include it. But the one that they did almost include was the Gospel of Peter, which concludes with like a hundred foot tall talking cross. You know, it's like literally walking around talking to people. You know, <laughs> on a mountain, the top of it's shooting out fire, it's surrounded by smoke, the ground is shaking. You know, there's rocks and lava flying everywhere. There's lightning, thunder, and all the... It's volcano imagery die and then they will be resurrected with the son of man and that comes from enoch 62 15 if you're looking at a different branch of judaism the ones that believed in this enochic theology it's obvious that these new testament authors are familiar with this material that we find in enoch Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. Today, I'm joined by Jason from Dragons of Genesis podcast. If you haven't seen that yet or heard of that, go right now. Put this on pause and go and subscribe. The link is in the description, and I have a comment pinned. So click that button, subscribe, hit the bell. It's amazing. I, it's one of my go-tos when I'm at work. So I'm lucky that when I'm at work, we're allowed to listen to podcasts and music and have headphones. I'm very fortunate in that sense. Your your channel is one of my go-tos. Every time I see a new Dragon Genesis, it's on my number one on my playlist for work because I love listening to your topics. And one of your big topics is Enoch, which is what we're going to get into mm-hmm. today. But uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to hear from listeners who really you know, actually enjoy my show. Uh, I get a lot of feedback from my listeners and the vast majority is positive. And so that's, that's always nice to hear. Yeah, man, your stuff is good. You really, you really uh, do the research and the work almost like scholarly, you know, and um, it is, I don't want to say almost, you do work that a scholar would do. You dig into the text, you put things side by side and compare things and you do it in a way that somebody like me can come along and listen and learn a lot from it. It's really entertaining stuff. Yeah, my goal is to be extremely thorough with the text, to go down all the little rabbit holes, to get all the little bits and pieces that all these different scholars have found and present them in such a manner that people who are complete beginners to the Bible can find it accessible. And that's my whole goal. I want to make the Bible, understanding the the deep recesses of this topic, I want to make that accessible to everyone, uh, at least everyone who's interested. So uh, that's that's basically what the podcast is. It's just making the Bible accessible and getting into those those little nooks and crannies that you're probably not going to get if you just pick up a commentary on the Bible and read it. Right. And in a lot of ways, you've been successful at that because you 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 demonstrate that you 
like like for example in the topic of enoch you really opened up my mind to the fact that and this is what we're about to talk about too so this is a good segue that you really opened up my mind to the fact that the book of enoch is not not only do we think it 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 uh it it, it influences early christianity we can show in the text of the new testament that it does which is what we're going to talk yes. about so why don't you give a little rundown about enoch and um and we'll just go from there yeah so sometime after the babylonian exile you have this massive reform within judaism uh the deuteronomic reform and it likely started before the Babylonian exile around the 7th century BC, but it continued on well into the Persian period. And the, the, I guess the product of that reform would become what we know of as rabbinic Judaism. And so when you think of Judaism, you're thinking of this reformed Judaism, you know, it's monotheistic, um, you know, there, there's a very clear delineation between heaven and earth you know, uh, a lot of these different things that you think of when you think of Judaism. But that wasn't the only Judaism. And it's possible that remnants of earlier Judaism survived well into the Christian period. And this may explain why it's so difficult to reconcile the New Testament with the Old Testament. Because when you try to reconcile Christianity with Judaism, you come into all these different problems. Mm. You know, uh, the character of Jesus almost seems anti-Jewish, but he's supposed to be a Jew. So how does that work? How does that even make sense? He's very anti-temple. He literally talks about destroying the temple and building a new one. That seems, you know, antithetical to Old Testament Judaism. And the answer to that may be that Christianity did not evolve out of the particular sect of Judaism that was in control of the temple during the Second Temple period. It likely evolved out of other sects of Judaism, like the sects that inhabited the town of Qumran, which left us the Dead Sea Scrolls. So when we look at these other sects of Judaism, we find that some of them look very close to Christianity. And if we take a look at that and we say, okay, were these the founders of Christianity? Is this where Christianity came from? One of the things that we find that is common among many of these groups of Jews is that they have a book that the Second Temple Jews didn't use, and that's the Book of Enoch. And when you look at some of these early uh, Christian manuscripts, you find that Enoch was not only um, important to them, but it was one that they actually quoted and referenced extensively in their own writings. And so it looks like Enoch may have been far more important to the foundation of Christianity than any single book of the Old Testament was. Wow. Yeah, you're right. And I just want to, instead of just say like you, that's perfect. makes perfect sense. But I want to show people an example right away. The biggest example we have. So you mentioned that the, it, it, uh, it draws from Enoch in the New Testament. Paul does this. John does this. But Jude actually quotes word for word. Yes. Text. Yes. So Enoch 1.9 says, and behold, 
He comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed and of the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against. Now we jump to Jude, which is uh, which which one is it again? Jude um, uh, 14 to 15. Okay, yes, because there's only one there's only one book. Yeah. Okay, there you go. That's right. Easy. Yeah, it's it's not long but, enough to have chapters. Yeah, so it says right here, Enoch of the seventh generation of Adam prophesies, quotes, this is literally what I just read. Behold, the Lord has come with countless holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict every one of the godless deeds that they have committed and the harsh words, the whole thing's there. So so first thing yeah. you say, first thing my first question when I saw this was okay, so where is this text coming from? And I and it, my, to my uh, to my founding was this was a Ethiopic copy of the Bible. However, there's also Dead Sea Scrolls fragments in Hebrew of this text. So so a, an apologist will say, well, this is a later Ethiopic Bible. This is not a Greek manuscript or anything like that. This is not a Hebrew manuscript. This is the Ethiopic Church. They don't know anything. That's what they'll say. I've heard people say this before. And then, but oh, it's yeah. like, well, wait a second. The Dead Sea Scrolls dates to the first century AD and sometimes even BC for some, some of them. Yeah. And this text is in there. And not only that, there's 10 copies of the Enoch scroll. It's the second most out of any scroll next to Jubilee. Yeah. Which shows you how yeah. important this was. Yeah. Uh, you know, creating these documents was expensive. You know, these things were typically done on things like lambskin. So you had to go and butcher, you know, a a dozen lambs and then turn their hides, you know, into something you could write on and then go and write by hand these documents so that you could preserve them. If you had nearly a dozen copies of something that was that was important to you. And it was certainly important to the the Qumran sect. And it, it was important to other Jews as well. And it was obviously important to early Christians because they keep quoting it like Jude did in that example. And what's really interesting is that this character that we see in the book of Enoch, this son of man, it's this messianic figure. Uh, he's also called the elect one in uh, in some parts of Enoch. He pops up in here and we, we have this quote from, uh, from Enoch 1.9 about this messianic figure. And then we see later, you know, a couple centuries later in uh, the letter of Jude, he's using this quote about this Enochic son of man figure, and he's using it for Jesus. Right. And so what we see is that at least with some early Christians, this uh, this messianic figure that we see throughout the book of Enoch is being understood as Jesus, or they are taking text concerning this messianic figure and using that as either prophecy for or inspiration for the stories about Jesus. Yeah. And to add to what you just said, that's wonderfully put. There is a verse in Revelation 21. First of all, Revelation is filled with similar themes of what we see in Enoch's vision. Because Enoch, as everyone knows, Enoch goes to heaven, he doesn't die. And the book of Enoch sort of elaborates on what happens after that. They sort of tell you yeah. how he goes up to heaven and he comes back and warns Lamech to tell Noah about the flood. Basically, it's like a prequel to Noah's flood story, basically. 
pretty interesting actually. right right follow, the fall of the angels the evil angels it's not satan spoiler alert it's not satan his name's azazel but I, I guess christians later on started to conflate the two but long story short just to give you another example revelation 21 you just said this the 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 uh the the, the chosen one the son of man his anointed the elect one this is what they keep talking about in enoch and mm-hmm. they use the same type of language in revelation 21 5 the one who sat on the throne said behold uh-huh. I make all things new and you can see how they're using the language of enoch and when and enoch is talking about this messiah this anointed one this elect one who sits on the throne says all these things in enoch that same language is apparent in the book of revelation and it's really strange the way revelation is written it's sort of like a dream like all these angels and lights and the throne and heaven and the, the anointed one and the holy ones and the elect ones that's all in revelation just like it's in enoch and it's yeah. like you can't escape that right you you read something like the book of revelation and you're tripping over enoch constantly um like revelation 21 3 through 4 talks about how the righteous they will die and then they will be resurrected with the son of man and wow. that comes from enoch 62 15 um there's um how the righteous will be wearing garments of glory. And this is uh, this shedding garments of flesh and putting on garments of light. This is a, a sort of resurrection, rebirth, ascension uh, imagery. And basically you, the, the righteous, they will shed their earthly garments. And this basically means, you know, dying. And then they will put on robes of light or garments of glory. And this basically means, transcending to a higher state becoming almost uh, angelic and we see reference to this in luke 9 29 and revelation 3 uh, and revelation 4 and this comes from one enoch 62 16 you know so you you go through you know revelation especially but throughout the new testament and you're going to see all these little things that seem antithetical to the old testament but they fit perfectly within Judaism if you're looking at a different branch of Judaism, the ones that believed in this Enochic theology, this uh, this apocalyptic messianic movement that is exemplified in the, in works like the Book of Enoch, Isaiah, Daniel, and you know some of the other prophets. Interesting that you said that because I pulled up the text, and sure enough, I literally just read from Revelation before you spoke where it talked about the elect one sitting on the throne. And you, you mentioned 62, chapter 62, where it says, recognize the elect one. The Lord of Spirit seated him, seated him on the throne of his glory. And then you mentioned that in 62, 16, it says, these will be the garments of life from the Lord of Spirits, and your garments will not grow old, nor glory. Luke Luke's parable mentions the old garments being replaced by new garments, right? If I'm not mistaken. So you see yes. these parables being being looks like they're being drawn from the Enoch text. Um, I also want I want to talk about why this matters to Christianity today. And and, there, and I think one of the big things that I like to point out is that a lot of Christians today, especially in the uh, Protestant movement, like to focus on what's canon and what's not canon. Right. There's 66 right. books and that's it. It's like, well, the question is, if it's only 66 books and everything else doesn't matter. And why would 
one of the 66 books that are canon have to quote a book that's not canon. So doesn't it yeah. kind of tell you that there's you want to elaborate on that? Go ahead. Yeah, what, what's funny is uh, canonical is just a matter of uh, perspective. Right. I mean, to one group of people, you know, you have one collection of books that's canonical. But you step across the border into another country or walk across the street into another church and you have a completely different set of books that's considered canonical. I grew up Catholic. We have seven books that the Protestants don't have. You know why? Mm -hmm. Well, for us, that's canonical. You go to Ethiopia and they've got like a dozen books that the Catholics don't even have. And for them, that's canonical. You know, so uh, I don't I don't really put much stock in what's canonical. It's all interconnected, you know. And so what some people decided in the 17th century doesn't really matter much whenever I'm looking at these texts, because these texts were written, you know, in a time when, you know, England didn't exist. You know, um, <laughs> there, there was no nation of England. There was no Church of England. You know, there was, there, there was no. Uh, Right, and, right. You know, this stuff this stuff didn't happen. So I, I don't put much stock in canon. And I agree 100%. And I don't, I don't think most people should put stock in canon. But the reason why I bring that up is to give somebody some ammunition against the – if somebody's like in, in debate or dialogue with somebody who is a fundamentalist who has – you know, I just want to – I want you to know that you have this – this is information for you to have to give back to somebody and say – well, why is your book special when your books quote books that aren't special? Basically is what I'm getting yeah. at. I think it's important yeah, to no yeah. notice that is that they don't have, I say they, but fundamentalists, you know, the, the Protestant types, they need, it's, it's important for people to understand they don't have a perfect theology that just came out of thin air. This had to right. this progression and evolution over time. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. I also yeah. want to, uh, go ahead, you want to say something? Uh, yeah, say um, one book that was almost canonical um, was the Gospel of Peter. Most people don't know it, but Mark almost didn't make the cut. And Mark is our earliest gospel. It's the one upon which all the others are based. Right. You know, uh, Matthew, Luke and John are basically, you know, reboots of Mark. And Mark almost didn't make it. It wasn't very popular. So they almost didn't include it. But the one that they did almost include was the Gospel of Peter, which concludes with like a hundred foot tall talking cross. You know, it's like literally walking around talking to people. You know, that <laughs> was like forget that about was that. Almost canonical. So can you imagine? Can you imagine fundamentalists today in 2021 trying to do the mental gymnastics to back up? Well, you know, a cross could talk. You never know. It's the power of God. Hey, anything can happen. Well, you know, it, it kind of makes sense, though, because if you drive along the interstate in like southern Illinois, they have these gigantic like 200 foot crosses just out in fields. And if they just put a loudspeaker on there, then, you know, hey, we could count Peter. Now, you know, the gospel of Peter is a prophecy. So, well, this is it, and it sounds crazy. Even if you're a Christian here in this, this you might say that's crazy. We would never do that. That's probably why it didn't make the cut. But it's like, but you also do have to defend talking donkeys and people teleporting people who got baptized right. teleported to another country and you say that happened because you kind of have to or else the once you take it's like the house of cards once you take one card out uh, is it gonna fall probably so this which is like it's like you i might be i might be being unfair by pointing out these are non-canonical but it's like 
if they were canonical, you'd have to you'd have to talk about it. You'd have to defend right. it. The the giant talking cross isn't any more ridiculous than half the other stuff in the Bible. And you that, know, that, that's a fact. Yeah, it really is. I mean, these we, are important texts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we've got uh, was it Elisha who calls down an army of angels on horseback to go and you know smite the Assyrians. We've got Yahweh in uh, the beginning of Judges losing a fight to a metal chariot. You know, we we've got some pretty crazy things in the Bible, and it's just accepted because it's in there. If the talking cross was in there, it it wouldn't be seen as any more ridiculous than Balaam's talking donkey. Uh, what it's just see? it's not in there, so it can be viewed as ridiculous. And what we would see is now that we're in 2021, we would see centuries long of a built up explanation of why it's there. Like we, people don't right. realize like apologetics is uh, built up information that people can go to. And oh, here's an argument from this apologist from 1952. And this has been this is a good argument right here. We need to use that one. It's they it's this is stuff that's been thought about. Thought over. Attacked. Uh, challenged and then rethought about for a long time to the point where now mm -hmm. it seems like every question you have about the text has an answer. And that's just yeah. the way it's going to be. Oh yeah. People try to find uh, ways to rationalize the, the Nile turning to blood or a bunch of frogs or, you know, you know, uh, hail that catches on fire and everything. They could try to come up with some sort of, explanation for it or whatever and you know uh talking crosses would be no different yeah i want to read a passage about the fallen angels this is not in the old testament in fact the old testament that's canon that's in the torah the, the torah the only thing you hear about enoch is enoch was taken up to heaven that's it and it's like yeah they, yeah he, he was like the the seventh generation from adam uh, I think this is in Genesis 5, like 14 or something. It's like a whole big, you know, uh, family tree. It's no, like what, the seventh generation that. from Adam. He lived yeah. 365 years. And then he walked with God and he was not. And that's it. Everyone else, it says how long they lived and then they died. With Enoch, he didn't die. He was, he walked with God and then that was it. Um and we see the same thing with uh, the prophet Elijah. Uh, he lives his life, and then when it's time to go, he gets taken up in a flaming chariot. So, you know, or a whirlwind, or both, uh, the same way that we have for Enoch. Um, he, he ascends bodily into heaven. And th that's and all we know about him. Like, that's it. That's it. And the, the interesting thing about this, and this is why I wanted to bring this up, is it says this. When Jared was 162 years old, he became the father of Enoch. That's all you get about Jared. That's actually all you get about most of the line from Adam to Noah. They do a genealogy yeah. in Genesis 5 from Adam to Noah, and most of the people get one sentence. Then it gets to Enoch. Jared lived 800 years for the birth of Enoch. And he had other sons and daughters. The whole life of Jared is 900 years. Enoch was 65 years old. He became the father of Methuselah. Enoch lived 300 years after the birth of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. The whole lifetime of Enoch was 365 years. Interesting number, by the way. And then mm -hmm. Enoch then Enoch walked with God, and he was no longer, for God took him. Doesn't, doesn't elaborate what that means. But, yeah. but there's a, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because 
somewhere, whoever wrote this, whatever priestly class or whoever, I don't know, Deuteronomy, whatever. There's all these different sources, I guess. Whatever, yeah. whoever wrote that is letting you know that this Enoch character is something different than the other one. There's something going on here. They don't elaborate, but they actually, there's a little bit of additional information compared to the other fathers. Right. And it's like, so why is that? And then you enter the book of Enoch. So this is why we're this is why we're having this conversation is what makes Enoch so important. And I don't know if you want to touch on that before I go on to the next thing I was going to say. Yeah, so th- there's uh something very interesting going on there. You know, um like the prophet Elijah, Enoch is connected with the sun. You see this throughout the book of Enoch and you see it right there in Genesis 5 with Enoch's age, 365 years. You know, this to represent the 365 days in a solar calendar. If you're using a lunar calendar, then you end up with like 355 days. And once every few years, you have to add another month into your calendar or you have to add uh, 10 days to the end of your year to sort of, you know, reconcile it. Otherwise, you know, your um, your calendar is going to get off, you know, by 10 days every single year and there's a huge section in the book of enoch all about the solar calendar and why it's important uh so that that little detail in there uh enoch's age that's actually important because enoch was probably originally like a sun god and then he kind of got demoted to being a sort of um a uh, solar prophet uh the same way that elijah was just how uh elisha was connected with the moon this is more profound than actually what I think you actually are getting at, or you know this, but I'm, what people are, how people are understanding what you're saying right now, because the reason why I'm saying this right now, and the reason why it's more profound than people actually think is because the Jews did not use a solar calendar. The Egyptians did. Right. The Jews had a lunar calendar based on the Babylonian calendar. The Egyptians had the only solar calendar, I think in the world, I'm not found maybe somewhere in the Eastern in Asia somewhere, they could have been a solar calendar. Maybe the Chinese. I'm not mm. sure. But I know in the West, from Persia over to England, basically, there was mm. no solar calendar except for in Egypt. In fact, the Julian calendar that we have that's basically still in use today. This is how this calendar was well done. Right. In the time of Julius Caesar, by the way, interestingly enough, he adopted his calendar from the Egyptians. They had a thick mm-hmm. day calendar. All Julius Caesar did was move some days around because uh, February was an unlucky month. So they, they only got 28 days and they divided up the seven. There was like seven extra days. They gave some months 31 days. So they took a 30, 30 day calendar, 365 days with an extra five days. And they took two days off of February because you seven days. And then they divided up this 31 days, basically long story short. There's a whole story behind that too. It's actually called the shortest date or it's actually called the longest day of the year. It's like 50, 45, somewhere around there, BC. Where the the year was actually like an, a year and a half because they fixed. Yeah, the they had to add like over a hundred days to the calendar for that year yeah. to basically get everything to sync up properly. Right, which is yeah. mind blowing. That the people in that year yeah. lived that much longer during that year. Now, it doesn't mean they actually yeah. lived longer in that year. It just means that year exists on our calendar right now as a longer year. Like it just does. Yeah. That makes sense to yeah. everybody. Um, it's basically like the worst case of daylight saving time ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. So why yeah, am I saying yeah. 
Because this is text right here in the Torah mentioning that Enoch's life is 365 years old, plus Enoch, the book of Enoch itself, really focusing on this solar mythology. Um, if you get yeah. later in the text, there's a, it's called Section 3, the Astronomical Book. And yeah. in this book, it talks about the luminaries. It talks about the sun being like the greatest of all the luminaries. The sun is like the image of God, it says. Um, the sun has its rising in the eastern portals of heaven. Like it's really putting the sun up on a pedestal as being this yeah. great, this great luminary figure greater than all the others. So, and, and so this brings me to the next point is that I think it's interesting that the book of Enoch only survives in the Coptic church, which mm-hmm. happens to be in Egypt, the place where the yeah. solar, the place where the solar calendar was started. So it had to be mm-hmm. important to them for this reason, in my opinion. What do you think about that? Yeah, I find it very interesting. Uh, the The beginning of section three, the 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 astronomical section or the book of astronomy, the the opening chapters of it is almost an instruction on how to build a device that will allow you to see what wow. day of the year it is just by standing in a certain spot and looking east when the sun comes up, and it basically divides the horizon up into sections and then each section is then subdivided into smaller sections and these are markings for the months and then as the sun comes up each day it moves either north or south along the horizon you know as you progress through the year and uh you can also do the same thing for the western sky at sunset and it's essentially outlining how to create a device for marking a solar calendar and we're talking about a text that could potentially be from 300 BC and it parts of it could actually, you know, stem from things that are even older than that. And a big portion of that section of Enoch talks about um, how the apostates and it identifies them as uh, essentially the people who came back from the exile, how the apostates that took over the temple rejected the solar calendar and went to a lunar calendar and how that is the cause of all the corruption in the universe and this seems odd it's like okay wait did did they have a solar calendar before the babylonian exile and that that may seem really far-fetched but we have to remember that the land of canaan up until the end of the bronze age was controlled by Egypt. Egypt ruled Canaan for centuries. Right. You know, they had like forts, they had outposts there. You know, they were heavily influenced. They traded, we find Egyptian pottery in Canaan. So th- there was extensive Egyptian influence. And we have Greeks who said, oh, go ahead. I just want to add something to what you're saying. This is amazing. And I want you to continue. But to, 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 to double up on what you just said, Herodotus, everyone who knows history knows Herodotus. He's like the father of history, basically. You go to him for ancient stuff on the ancient world. He talks about the Canaan as just being part of Egypt. So in in Herodotus, Canaan is Egypt. That's why I throw that in there. Go ahead. Right. Uh, It's funny that you mention the ancient Greeks. Uh, Some of the ancient Greek authors prior to the Babylonian exile said that the Jews, that, that the, the people who lived in Canaan, in Judah, um, in Israel, they said that they were accomplished astronomers. 
You would not get that impression by reading the Old Testament. They don't care about astronomy. You know, that that's like a taboo. You don't you don't mess with it. And the Greeks before this time, they're like, oh, yeah, the, the Jews, they are accomplished astronomers. Well, if you read something like the Book of Enoch, you'd say, oh, some of them were. Right. And I think that they were using that Egyptian solar calendar prior well, to the 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 exiles coming back and bringing the Babylonian lunar calendar. And I think that's actually at the root of this this uh, conflict between the Second Temple Jews and those that uh, preserved books like the Book of Enoch. <laughs> yeah, this is from 1854. <laughs> Okay, but th this is this is a good source to have because this is a an old Egyptologist, brilliant, brilliant scholar from 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 centuries ago, basically. But he talks about I, I just flipped right to the page by chance. That's crazy. Probably because I've been on this page a million times. My thumb that just kind of you know what I mean. This is a, a Yahweh guided you. Yeah, Yahweh. This is the layout of the Temple of Heliopolis. And this scholar, Adolf Ehrman, thinks that the people in Heliopolis have a connection to the people in Jerusalem, the way their temples were built. He doesn't know that they're he's not saying that they're all Jews or anything, but he's saying that since it's it's quite he's, he, I think he connects the Hyksos to them in some way. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. That's that's a whole other topic. But he mentions that the, the 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 temple of Heliopolis is really similar to the temple in Jerusalem, the way it's the way it's laid out, the way the sections of the temple are. They have a holy yeah. of holies, exactly the same holy of holies. Same. I, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same, but it looks like it's the same dimensions. It has the holy of holies in the middle in this little square area that only the priests in Heliopolis can go to. The name Heliopolis uh -huh. is Sun City. Right. So clearly these people had a solar. And now, now, I'm, now I know I'm jumping into some. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to write it well, all together. These... But I think it's interesting to point it out. Yeah, well, these ancient temples, you know, uh, in Egypt, in Jerusalem, you know, all over the place. Um, if you notice, like when you read the descriptions of how it's supposed to be set up, like they talk about it in um, in Exodus. They talk about it in Kings, you know, every place that you find the description of the temple. They talk about, you know, the dimensions, the layout, where everything is facing and everything else. And what you find, whether it's in Egypt or Jerusalem or anywhere, uh, there's a good chance that your temples are going to have a door that's facing either east or west so that when you're inside the temple, you can watch the sun either rise or set. And the, the Jerusalem temple was no different. It was arranged, I think, to face west, but I'm not positive. It, it faced the horizon, either the east or west, so that they could so that sunlight could come in uh, at either dawn or dusk and reach all the way to the back where the Holy of Holies was. And that, wow. that was kind of the point. You know, they, they talk about, you know, uh, these, these rituals and things. And these things were very uh, solar oriented. And I believe it's in Ezekiel. They actually talk about how there were people in Jerusalem worshiping the sun. You know, wow. uh, and so it's like, we, we have to remember that, you know, these religions, they weren't anything new. Like, Nobody met Moses up on a mountain and gave him a new religion. That never happened. Okay. These are stories where they're trying to, um, they're trying to come up with a new origin story for their beliefs. And they're trying to pretend that 
they aren't an ancient sun cult like all of these people were. You know, they're they're trying to pretend that they don't worship nature. And so the these stories about the sun and the moon and the stars and rivers and oceans and volcanoes, they get repackaged and you know, sun gods like Shamash turn into Samson, you know, things like that. They 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 change these things up so that they're not recognizable for what they are. Uh, wow. But no, that's that's where it started. It it was things like solar worship, lunar worship. Uh, you know, they believe that their gods lived in volcanoes, which is why Yahweh has so much volcano imagery associated wow. with them. I mean, the story of Exodus is packed with volcano imagery. You go up on a mountain, the top of it's shooting out fire, surrounded by smoke. The ground is shaking. You know, there's rocks and lava flying everywhere, and there's lightning and thunder and all the re- is volcano imagery. Like, how can you not see that? You know, um, yeah. And, and I'll give you a I'll give you a prime example of astro- astronomy being injected into the Old Testament and making its way into the modern Bibles. As you got in the Exodus, you got a story where the Israelites are going through the desert and they're trying to find water and they're, they're starving and they're thirsty. And all of a sudden they, uh, they find this place that's called Moriah and it's, it has 72, it has 12 streams of water. Yeah. So the number 12 with 72 yeah. palm trees surrounding mm-hmm. it. What does that sound like? It sounds like a, I'm going to show it on the screen right now in the post edit. It looks like a Zodiac map. Yeah. 72 constellations and 12 major constellations. That is a zodiac map. 72 is yeah. not a random number. And by the way, if this was really historically true, there should be archaeology, even if these rivers dried up. Let's say they all let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt. The rivers could have dried up the, and the trees could have all died. There still should be archaeological archaeological evidence for there being a place, an oasis in the middle of the desert of Sinai with 12 trees and or 12 streams and 72 palm trees we should be able to find that area that area has never been yeah. found yeah yeah it, it it's not you know these aren't stories about things that actually happen these are stories that have a deeper meaning they serve uh an ideological purpose the these stories are meant to convey a message uh they're, they're meant to remind the the listeners of something uh they're, they're not really meant to um recount history if they were they would be written very differently they'd be written more like histories were written at the time but they're not um you know and and instead they they do things where they have these tales about these ancient figures who do something in a very particular way and then later you see the same figure popping up uh or a a different figure but serving a similar purpose popping up doing the same things in the same way but maybe with a different name you know, right. Uh, so it's, it's the same well, thing. Let me give you an example of that you got. So you got Nimrod, who this is this is actually in the Jubilee book, where Nimrod is killing the babies. No, this is in this is not. I think it's in Jubilee, but this is definitely in Jasher, which is in this following oh, yeah. the same. Jasher is a great one. Yeah, Jasher was a really important book to the ancient Israelites, um, and it's not only okay. This is a perfect example why I'm using why Jasher, right? Well, Jasher, just like Enoch, is quoted in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua literally says that, and after all this happened, this is recorded in the book of Jasher. So for someone to say, that's you can't use that book. 
that's not in our canon. Well, it's quoted in your canon, so we should be able to look at it. Yeah. So left, let's, that, let's, let's go back and read it. Exactly. Yeah. So after, with that being said, in the book of Jasher, talks about Nimrod living for like 300 years. There's no If there was a Nimrod that lived for 300 years, we would know this. This would be because we know about all the Sumerian kings, and there's no Nimrod. There's a Sargon of Akkad, and there's a Naram Sin yeah. of Akkad, which is his grandson. I'm not sure if this is an allegory of that whole generation put together. Could be. Yeah. Can't prove that. But it makes a lot of sense to me because this is around the same timeline. Long story short, there's a story in Book of Jasher where Nimrod is searching for the birth of Abraham, who's a baby at the time, and he wants to kill mm-hmm. him. So he kills all the, all the firstborns. And surely enough, Tamar, or whatever, I think that's his father's name. Abraham's father's name is starts with a T. Anyways, he uh he doesn't want to kill his son, so he gives up a, a a a baby who's a slave, and the baby slave gets killed, and they think it's Abraham. So they think, haha, we got him. This Abraham is dead. So Abraham grows up and blah blah blah. Long story short, you see the same story happening in Egypt with Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants to kill all yeah. the first ones because he doesn't want whatever doesn't want Moses to do what he's saying. Then we see it happen again with Herod. Herod. Gets, gets word from these three magi that Jesus is born. He's the Messiah. We got to kill him. We can't have a Messiah here. I'm the king. But it's interestingly enough is that not only is this motif being shared, it almost it poses the question, if this Jesus' birth is so important that Herod knows about it, how come we don't have any other texts about some Jesus character until 40 years after his life? Yeah. And, he, and people say, well, he, he wasn't that important. They didn't know who he was yet. Well, Herod knows who he was. Herod was trying to kill him for the fact that he sent out soldiers to go kill every baby. So yeah. that should that should be like, oh, who is this Jesus guy? Everyone should know that name by now. But I I, I know I, I could be being unfair about this because we all know it's allegory. I'm talking to a fundamentalist at this point, which probably aren't really watching me. But and I, and so and so and the, and the reason why I bring all that up is because to add to what you're saying is like you have these motifs that mean something that carry weight in these theology. And it, it's it's very present and very apparent when you actually put the lines, when you take the book of Jasher and put it up to this book, and you take the book of Enoch and put it up to this book, all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is making sense. There's a progression here. Yeah. And the um, that, that particular motif, you know, that exact scene, actually, uh, the Jews weren't even the only ones who used that. We've got the, the Persians, the Zoroastrians had a story almost identical to that. And what it was at the birth of Zarathustra, uh, of course, his birth was foretold by prophecy and um, his mother, she goes to give birth. The house is filled with this divine light and she gives birth to Zarathustra and all the evil in the world cried out in fear because this new prophet was born and this king named Durin Surum goes and tries to kill him because he knows that he's going to grow up to be a great leader. So he goes to try to murder uh, the the prophet Zarathustra as a baby. And when he tries to stab him, uh, their god, Ahura Mazda, comes down from heaven and grabs his arm and causes it to wither. And he drops the dagger and then he flees in fear. Uh, I think we have something similar in, I believe, Second Kings where uh, somebody goes to do something and Yahweh like, you know, causes the man's hand to wither. Um, but yeah, that, yeah. that, that scene, you know, of the, the King trying to kill the infant, you know, who later becomes his great prophet and, you know, leader. 
um, that that was common in the ancient Near East. Um, I, yeah, I call it the uh, the humble prophet motif. You know, it keeps it. I think it's a way for um, a national religion to appeal to the the peasant class. You know, yeah. because uh, Zoroastrianism yeah. was really good at that. They were really good at appealing, you know, to to the poor people uh, with these promises that. At the end of time, the the poor will be raised up and the wealthy will be cast down and stuff like that, uh, which is also found throughout the Book of Enoch, um, the the Book of Blessings and Curses. Is, it's like all about how um, the the wealthy will be cast down and the poor will be raised up, and is full of statements like "Blessed are the poor, for they shall get this" and you know all the rest, uh, which, which would be. Right, right. This gets uh, recycled for the Beatitudes, um, which yeah, exactly. that's that's what uh, Matthew, I believe. Um, yeah, that's Matthew five. Yeah, yeah. yeah Matthew. Um, yeah, Matthew loved Enoch. Um, you, can, you can see it. And speaking of the whole thing of like you know uh, casting judgment on you know these wealthy people and stuff like that, um, that section at the end of Jude. Where you know, he talks about you know judging the false prophets, and you know it was taken directly from Enoch one nine. We have something similar in uh, at the end of Matthew chapter twenty five. This whole big section called the judgment of nations, and the entire thing is all about how um, at the end of time this messianic figure is going to sit in judgment over everyone, and he's going to judge these wealthy, uh, powerful people who were doing all of these horrible things you know and so the all the kings and the rulers of the nations you know they'd better watch out because jesus is going to come for him he's going to judge them and that chapter ends with uh, a phrase that basically says that the righteous don't have anything to worry about because they're going to be given eternal life and this is taken directly from first enoch chapter 62 which is all about judging the nations and, and ends with a promise to the elect that they will be granted eternal life and they don't have anything to worry about. Um, it's almost like the, this formulaic chapter and it follows, you know, the, the end of uh, Matthew 25, it follows the layout of uh, Enoch 62. And that that's likely where he got it. You know, it, like he's not quoting it verbatim, but he's familiar with it. You know. I think there's enough there that if you were a professor in college and you were reading this paper, you uh, you might charge them with plagiarism. Might. Now, I'm not saying they copied it. And this is, the reason why I bring this up, because I hate using that word plagiarism. Now, in school, you can't do that. You can't just be like, I'm going to copy from this book and rearrange. They're not doing that exactly. They're, I don't want to make it think right. like I'm a plagiarist. But what it is, is it's things are in the air. Things are in the air. And it's like it's like when we listen to music today. You might hear like a hip hop song or something, and it could sound a lot like another song. And but it's cool. Like it's not like they copy the person. It, may, it becomes a hit for a reason. People like the way it sounds. It reminds it, the, the two songs can connect to each other. Like oh, this 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 producer sampled an old '70s song and they made a new rap song out of it. Cool. It's awesome. Everyone likes it. This is sort of similar to that, where there's things that are already around. They're popular. There people are already using them. And it gets sort of redone yeah. in a new light. And another right. example of that is like the birth of Mithridates in 165 BC. They decided that his birth was signified by a star in the east. 
Well, you mentioned Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrian, mm-hmm. the, uh, there's an account of Zoroaster in the desert fasting, and he gets rushed by Angramanu. And Angramanu tells him, just worship me, man, and it's all good. I'll give you everything. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like oh, Jesus. <laughs> Let's think about that for a second. Sounds a lot like yeah. Jesus being tempted by Satan. Now, I'm not saying that Matthew copied Zoroastrian, but he could have been giving a nod to, that's a really good story. But Jesus yeah. is a little bit better than that. I'm going to show you why. And Jesus, he adds a little different narrative to it. He says that he offers Jesus all the kingdoms and shows him all the kings. He said, if you jump now, the angels save you. Well, he sort of makes Jesus into a little bit more of a philosopher, and he sort of like beats Jesus or beats Satan with his intellect. He said, you know, thou shalt not test the Lord. And it's like, so it's not copying, but it's it's just taking something and making it better, basically. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- these things, these were, um, they weren't exactly plagiarizing, but they do occasionally quote these things directly. And it's obvious that these New Testament authors are familiar with this material that we find in Enoch, um, because they, they have views concerning their Messiah that sort of are at odds with the Old Testament. And it, mm. it makes Christianity this this form of Judaism that is in some ways unrecognizable from second temple Judaism. Um, like uh, the idea that their Messiah was created at the beginning of time. And then he was then the agent of creation for the rest of the universe. You know, th- this contradicts the, the six day creation in Genesis one where God just speaks everything into existence. It never says, Oh, well, before he did all of this, he then made the son of man and then funneled his power through him to create the universe. But we find this, you know, in places like first uh, Corinthians eight, six and 10, one through four. Uh, we find it in Romans eight, three, you know, the, their Lord, their Christ existed at the beginning of time and he was the instrument of creation. So when, when the great high God, El Elyon created the universe, he did so through the Christ figure. Now, you're not going to find this in the Old Testament, but you'll find it in First Enoch 48.3. You know, so, wow. you know, Paul was familiar with this. Um, right. I did, I think, like a five-part series where I covered all the letters of Paul. And it's like every third paragraph, I'm saying, oh, and here's the part in Enoch where he got it. You know, uh Paul is constantly referring to uh, to Enoch. Um, you know, earlier you were talking about the thrones. You know how how Jesus sits on this throne. Uh, we see that in uh, the first chapter of Hebrews. I think it's maybe like verse eight, I believe. Uh, you know, so after his resurrection, Jesus he ascends to the highest point in heaven. They had this multi tiered heaven. Um, most of the time they say it has like seven layers. He ascends to the, the highest layer and he's given his own throne. And we see this in first Enoch wow. 62, five, you know, so the, the son of man goes to the highest throne, uh, the highest layer, and he sits on the, the high throne and trying to usurp that throne, uh, was the sin that we have associated with the fallen angels, you know, they, they try to ascend to this throne. They get cast down. We see that in uh, 
oh god what is it isaiah 14 i believe uh we see it in a few other places this, this you is know, what they, i want they call him the morning star trying to usurp the you know the, the god's high throne uh and you know that's the sin of pride but their their son of man their christ figure humbling himself and descending to to suffer he is then awarded the highest throne you know for for basically debasing himself this is really important what you just said this is what I, this is the, this was actually where i wanted to go next and you just sort of did it yourself but um real quick before i get to that i put, I put you're right about hebrews one hebrews one is about the messianic enthronement so you have uh-huh. these where he talks about the the angels with the oil of gladness above the commandments, and it talks about the uh, the ministers of the angels wins a minute. Angels wins. Now Enoch talks about the four wins. This talks about yeah. angels wins and a fiery flame. This is all mm-hmm. stuff that you see in Enoch. Fiery flame yeah. swords guarding heaven. Four winds are, are yeah. coming against the temple. This is all in Hebrews. So there's that was a great example. But, I, oh, yeah. but then he Hebrews about, is full of Enochic imagery. Full of it. And Hebrews is a perfect example to go to to compare to Enoch. If anyone else wants to do it, but you also mentioned this fall of when in Hebrew is Hallel. Uh, the 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 Christian Bibles have either Morning Star or Lucifer, who is a yeah. Roman god found in Ovid's Metamorphosis, which is wild. Yeah. That's like that's like reading the Christian Bible and there being like Aphrodite or something. It really is no yeah. different. Yeah. Which is crazy, but I want to talk about how it, how we get how Christians get to that point because they have a different Satan archetype than the Jewish Satan archetype, completely different. Yeah, in the Jewish Bible, Satan's always there. He's always basically a a uh, accuser, which is what the word actually means. He's basically God's yeah. district attorney. He's there to yeah. accuse the wicked. That's all he's there for. Yeah. He's not really this. Are a anti-God figure that you see in Christianity. And the reason why I think we get there is because of Enoch. And I'm going to read something oh, yeah. real quick. It says, And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made it known to them the metals of the earth, the art of working them, bracelets, ornaments, beautifying of eyelids, all kinds of cold, costly stones, and arose godlessness. Basically, long story short, the next paragraph is about Michael, Okay, Michael is the angel chosen by Daniel and John for Revelation is the one who fights against Satan, not in Daniel, but in Revelation, he fights against Satan. And uh, and Daniel, he just rises up as a great prince and to, you know, to, to win against this, this big war at the end of days in, in Revelation. He actually is fighting against Satan. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because in Enoch is where you actually get a narrative about the fall of, of, of Azazel, they call him. It's not Satan. Now, the reason why this is so important is because Christians later on are looking at the fall of Azazel. Then they're seeing the fall in Isaiah 14 that you mentioned. And they're they're sort of what they're doing is they're sort of putting them together as this new Satan, who is Satan who fell yeah. from heaven, which doesn't happen in the Old Testament. Satan never falls from heaven. Right. Hell, it's not Lucifer either. Lucifer is in Roman, Roman mythology. But what Christians are doing and what the later church is doing is they're saying, well, this could be the archetype of our, and I think Gnosticism has a little bit of a uh, little bit to, to play in here because I think Marcion's theology influences the church in a, in a little bit, not fully. But Christians are not Gnostics, I get that, but I think Marcion had some influence in the fact that Satan becomes the archetype for evil. So what they're doing is they're taking a thread 
and they're tying the thread in between all these little holes and making Azazel, the fallen angel, Lucifer, fallen from Isaiah, which is the way they translated it because it means right, bear. right, and then Satan being the arc of all evil, and they're tying it all into one character. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, they they really grab a bunch of these different figures, um, like uh, Ottoman the Opposer from Zoroastrianism, which huge influence on Judaism. Uh, and yeah. that one, I think that's why the name Satan gets in there is because you have Ottoman the Opposer, who is this great cosmic evil. When you think about Satan, you're really thinking about Ottoman. You know, he's nearly as powerful as Ahura Mazda. He's responsible for all the wickedness and corruption. You know, he's locked in this cosmic battle with the great high God. And, you know, um, everyone is, you know, involved in this conflict. You're either on the side of good or on the side of evil. And linguistically, that's where Satan comes in because Araman the opposer, if you bring that into Judaism into Hebrew, you have Araman HaSatan, because Satan just means opposer. If you look at the Old Testament, uh, like the story of Balaam or the story of Job, a Satan, it's not a specific person. It's not a name. It's a job title. It's an angel who works for Yahweh. They're, they're Yahweh's employees, and they they like stand guard. They uh, prevent people from going places they shouldn't. They also uh, investigate people. They find people who are supposedly good and faithful servants, and they test them to find out if they actually are indeed faithful servants. They're sort of like um, prosecuting attorneys mixed with security guards, mixed with undercover agents. That's what they do. But when you then bring in this Zoroastrian influence and you have this thing whose name means you know the opposer, and that gets mixed with your opposer. It's only a matter of time before your opposer becomes linked with this great cosmic evil. And somewhere along the way, things like Leviathan, uh, Nehushtan from the Garden of Eden, the, the talking snake, um, you know, the uh, Lucifer, the, the fallen kings and stuff like that, that all gets wrapped up into it because you also have things like Zoroastrianism where you have these, uh, these divine figures who are linked with Kings who are cast down for their wickedness and their pride or whatever, uh, who are linked with these, uh, these fallen angels or these uh, rebellious angels uh, like Azazel and Simyaza and all of these others. Uh, so yeah, it, it's like uh, our modern Satan is a giant, patchwork he's a quilt made of about a half dozen different things and then they take uh the god ball and they throw him in there you know basically anyone that they don't like they're like uh he's satan and they just cast that in as well and he becomes the the basically the in the flesh i guess you would call him that he basically they make him the opposite of jesus he's the yeah, he's living body of evil, and they take yeah. all things that are evil, and then they even reference things like power, power, powers and principalities, the archons of this age. Yeah, this is all Satan. Now all of a sudden, Satan's in charge of this stuff. Now all of a sudden, there's there's references in I, even in Jude actually. Uh, this is actually from Jude where it talks about don't let Satan have. I think it's Jude. I could be wrong. Where there's a verse where in one of the epistles that he's 
Paul or whoever, Jude or whoever's writing to, where he says, don't let Satan get your soul. As if Satan yeah. has like, as Satan becomes Hades. Yeah. That's, that's Greek mythology. Only in Greek mythology, yeah. and I think in Hindu mythology too, is there an underworld with a God who can have your soul. That's not in Judaism. Only Yahweh right. Judaism controls souls. And yeah. in, the, in the New Testament, all of a sudden Satan can have your soul. Does that mean Satan yeah. in control of the underworld? Like, so basically, to add to what you're saying, Hades, Pluto, um, these like dark lords that run the underworld, Osiris, those are all being thrown into the mix. Set, they're throwing all these attributes at Satan too. So you get this this complete archetype of all things evil. The author of death. Right, right. Uh, we we got you were talking about this this weird angel theology with the principalities and powers. You know, we see this referenced in uh, Ephesians six, where it talks about that. Right. And this we also find this in First uh, Enoch forty and forty one. It talks about these principalities and powers. Uh, Enoch has this very complex angel theology, yeah. um, and then this whole idea of a segregated afterlife again. That is not part of Second Temple Judaism. It's not in there, but it's in Enoch. Uh, right. You know, we, the end of that that chapter we were talking about earlier in uh, Matthew, where it talks about the judgment, and then at the end of it, it's like, oh, if if you're one of the righteous, don't worry because you get eternal life. It concludes by saying, and the wicked will get eternal punishment. That's uh, Matthew twenty five forty six. The only time in the entire New Testament. That it says bad people get eternal punishment. Everywhere else, it says that you know they get cast into fire or something like that, or they get destroyed. But this one time in Matthew twenty five forty six, eternal life for the good, eternal punishment for the wicked, and this comes from First Enoch twenty two. Enoch gets a he's getting a tour of the universe, and the angel Uriel, I believe, yeah. um, shows him this thing where they they basically have these caverns, and it's segregated. The good people are in one cavern, the wicked people are in another cavern, and there's a third cavern for people who aren't really good or bad enough to fall into either category. And these people are given a second chance, and if they proclaim the name of their uh, their messianic figure, their their savior deity, then they'll get to join the righteous and go to heaven. If not, then they'll be forgotten and they'll be cast in with uh, with all the wicked. And this is where you get the Christian idea of purgatory. Early wow. Christians had purgatory, but yeah. you can't find it in the Bible. Well, that's because it wasn't in all the Bibles. Yeah, it but it was known. It was you well know. known, and you could prove this through Josephus and other first century writers where they reference what's called the bosom of Abraham. Now, if you just yeah. read, if you're just reading the, I think it's Matthew, right? Where they talk about the bosom of Abraham or where Jesus actually quotes. I think so. it. It's one of the parables where the, uh, the, the rich man and the, and the poor man and the poor man's on the bosom of Abraham and the rich man, he's like in hell. And he's like, Oh, just give me a drop of water. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. So this story in particular Talks about the bosom of Abraham. I think it's and, in Luke. Yeah, it could be Luke. Okay, don't quote me on that, but I think yeah. it's in Luke. But let's just let's just we all agree that it's there. It's there. We, any Christian it, will yeah, tell you. Google it. You'll find it. So, anyways, this bosom of Abraham. If you don't know what that means, you might just think he's literally talking about this guy sitting next to Abraham in heaven. Well, when you read about when you read the historians from the first century, especially Josephus and other ones, 
this is actually a place. Josephus mm-hmm. references the, the bosom of Abraham being like a waiting room for heaven. So yeah. this is not so this this is actually this gives you biblical solid grounding, I, I should say, for people who use uh, purgatory in their theology. So if you're a Catholic watching this, there you go. I just gave you some ammunition against the Protestants who tell you that you don't have purgatory. There you do. You do have solid grounding. There is a purgatory and it's found yeah. in script. But go ahead. This, and we'll just end on this. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, th- there's all sorts of strange Christian beliefs that you have a very difficult time finding justification for, and that's because they aren't always clearly expressed in the canonical books. And that's one of the problems with canon. You only got yeah. so many books that make the cut, you know. And things like Enoch, which was extremely influential for early Christians, uh, you you lose that. Um, you just now you're talking about how Satan was sort of like the uh, he becomes the antithesis of Jesus, you know, and, you know, he gets like cast down. Um, well, we have, um, you know, Jesus, his whole thing is he, uh, you know, because he humbles himself, which we see a very clear example of this in the ascension of Isaiah, another that people definitely need to read. Um you know, he humbles himself and then he gets raised up. And because of that, he he gets his own throne. And what people don't realize is that early Christians believed that he, uh, his name, uh, he didn't get his name until he ascended. And there was, um, see, I think it, I think they mentioned Hebrews. It's in the Ascension of Isaiah. Uh, Philemon 2.9, I believe, says it. After his resurrection and ascension, uh, then he was given his name. So he, he was basically this, this figure that was hidden. Uh, and it actually says uh, that Jesus, that after he was created at the beginning of time, that he was kept hidden. That's in uh, Acts 319 i believe actually hang on i can find it jesus uh who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration uh that god announced long ago through his holy prophets basically jesus gets he gets created at the beginning of time and then he's sort of kept hidden and nobody knows about him and this is so he can complete the secret mission of getting himself crucified because if people knew who he was then he wouldn't they wouldn't do it because doing this would would undo all of their evil deeds. That's the whole purpose of his self-sacrifice is to restore the earthly creation. And then after he dies and is resurrected, he then gets revealed. And that's when people find out that his name is Jesus. We see this explicitly in the Ascension of Isaiah. Uh, He's kept hidden. No one knows who he is. He comes down, the demons kill him. And then he rises up. And when he ascends into heaven, he then gets his name. He's named Jesus and all the demons panic because now they realize what they've done. They accidentally shed the blood of the one person who could undo all the corruption they've been conducting for thousands of years. Um, and we, we see this um, Philemon 2.9 talks about how uh, he didn't get his name until after his resurrection and ascension. And in First Enoch 69.26, he's yeah. named you know, he gets his name, he gets his title after he ascends. Um, and uh, like I said, Acts 319 uh, talks about how he was kept hidden. And we also get this in First Enoch 48, 6. You know, so th- 
the son of man in Enoch, this elect one, is the same figure that Christians are talking about. This is their belief. You know, it, it's not a new figure that they learned about in the first century. Right. This is old theology that goes back centuries before Paul yeah. was born. And I think it goes outside of Judaism, too. And here's why oh, yeah. I want to say that. I think the Roman imperial cult might have influenced this a little bit. And and this is going to sound like experiences here, but actually Den- Dr. Dennis McDonald agrees with me to an extent on what I'm about to say. And this is what we'll end on because we're, we're, we're way past, but this has been fun. But um, so I actually, when you mentioned that the ascent of Isaiah talks about angels killing the, the chosen one and he ascending mm-hmm. up into heaven and getting a new name and the ones that killed him panic. It sounds really similar to a story about Julius Caesar. Okay, well, hear uh-huh. me out. Julius Caesar gets killed by his, the by the conspirators when he he gets deified, and they and Ovid writes about this. It's called the apotheosis of Julius Caesar. When when Julius Caesar is deified, they say that his soul because they uh, cremated him, and they say that the remains rised up into the comet Venus, which was his bloodline. Uh-huh that he was a descendant of, yeah. of Venus. Now, now what happens is he, in his will, he does a bunch of smart moves in his will, which gives a power over to the people. First of all, he, he gives all his money over to the Roman soldiers. Yeah. Like millions of dollars equivalent to now would have been given to Roman soldiers. Plus, oh, he wow. adopts, yeah. Plus he adopts, adopts Octavian. Gives him all this mm-hmm. power, the new Caesar, which yeah. Caesar becomes the son of God. So all of a sudden, yeah. you have this weird story of, and all by the way, all the conspirators end up being killed by basically Augustus. Augustus gets revenge yeah. for his father. So what you see is you see this guy being killed and then him literally redeeming himself from being from heaven. So you get the story of this Messiah-like thing. You get Augustus is the son of God. And they put the devious Ilias on all the coins in the Roman Empire for the next 40 years is the Pax Romana. And it's mm-hmm. interestingly enough, and the reason why I'm not saying they, they took the story and they, I'm not saying they're worshiping Julius Caesar or I'm not saying they even think Julius Caesar is the Messiah. But I think it's quite possible that these themes are in the air when they're thinking of what a Messiah would yeah. be like. And, and, and the last thing I want to say about this is it's interestingly enough that the last thing uh, Julius Caesar did was win the civil war against Pompeii and Julius Caesar was known to be a little bit better to the Jews than other uh, Roman empire emperors were. For example, Pompeii snuffed out the Jews and went into their temple and desecrated the temple. So when he kills Pompeii and defeats Pompeii, the Jews are probably looking at that like, Oh, they killed the guy that desecrated our temple. He redeemed us. Augustus, Mm -hmm. Augustus was known for being very generous to the Jews and letting them worship however they want to worship. So now you got yeah. father, son, pro-Jewish, and now you got these Jews who are thinking of what a Messiah is like, and they're yeah. thinking, well, this guy, he must have been like the Messiah. He's like a new Cyrus, pretty much. So when the when the idea of Messiah is coming about in the first century BC to AD, and this is all my own thoughts, I'm not getting this from anybody else, but this is this to me, this kind of makes sense that this would influence early Christian writers who are writing about what a Messiah would do. He would die yeah. for our sins. He would die for this. He would redeem himself from the, his, his uh, Judas would, would be immediately killed after all this. Like all those things could be in play. Yeah. This one. 
But what do you think about? Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, that, that that's really fascinating. Uh, and we also have another one that pops up, um, and this one is also mentioned in the book of Enoch in a fascinating section called the animal apocalypse that retells the entire history of the world, but all the characters are replaced with animals. It's really bizarre. And there's this one section that Christians, you know, ever since Enoch was discovered have been saying is a prophecy concerning Jesus. And it talks about how um, the, the temple was corrupt and, um, there were like these foreigners who had invaded and they controlled everything. And this, this one man rose up and he led the people. Uh, he purified the temple, established a new high priest. Um, he cleansed everything. He was betrayed and he was betrayed by his own people, by, by Jews. And um, he was, he was basically killed. He was martyred. And then after this, there's this prophecy that he will one day come again at a future time, only it'll be bigger and better. And this time he will have a permanent uh, restoration of the temple. You know, he, he won't just tear down and rebuild something, you know, to the small degree that he did at this point. He'll do it even bigger and he will establish this whole new kingdom and everything will all be set right. And th this is repeatedly used as a um, as a prophecy concerning Jesus, and it's actually used in Enoch as a prophecy concerning the coming of the Son of Man. But it's talking about a guy named Judas Maccabeus who led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, kicked wow. them out, took all the Greek statues and all the Greek uh, you know pagan ornamentation, ripped it out of the temple, threw it away, and then. Uh, financed massive renovations uh, and a reconsecration of the temple. New high priest gets established. He eventually gets betrayed uh, by some of the Jews. He loses some battles. He dies. Uh, but his brother, John Hyrcanus comes along. He kind of finishes everything up. He unites the Northern and Southern kingdoms for the first time. Uh, and it, it kind of establishes uh, a sort of a new golden age for the kingdom of Israel. Um, and, and Enoch is talking about this and talking about how they look forward to a second coming of, of this Judas Maccabeus figure who will one day come and do the, the same uh, sort of restoration and conquest, but even bigger and better. Uh, and they, it's all wrapped up in this son of man theology. And so their idea of a Messiah was sort of a rebirth of this Jewish rebel leader. Uh, and so it's 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 really fascinating stuff. And this is something that is still used today as a prophecy about Jesus, because they say, oh, look, they're, they're talking about, you know, all the things that Jesus did. It's like, no, they're, they're talking about Judas Maccabeus, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it's right. it's amazing it's stuff. No, it is. And it, it, what, it, it's it, that's the perfect thing to end on, because it shows you how this idea, this concept of a world savior messiah and you have all these texts that you can put side by side and you all of a sudden you a light bulb just goes off and you're like now i can see how this is all happening now i can see why these ideas are being thrown around this is make, yeah. it makes perfect sense and yeah. that's this, this is why yeah. I, go ahead 
Yeah, they, they they had these people. They had a horrible time. I mean, they were basically at a crossroads. Everybody and his brother conquered them: the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Macedonians. You know, one after another. You know, you've got the Greeks, you've got the Romans. Everybody conquered this land. They just wanted to to have sovereignty. They wanted to be their own nation, and they just desperately wanted that. And so, it makes sense that their prophecies are about someone coming along and kicking out the intruders, taking out all the stuff that they feel is corrupt and setting up a new nation, a new temple, a new religion, a, a new way of life in which things are just better. And that's what you see, you know, like hell from like Exodus on. <laughs> All the way through the New Testament, Enoch, all of it. They, it's it's desperate people who are just clinging to an imaginary hope that one day things will be better. Uh, luckily, yeah. there's no more fighting in the Middle East. It's all peaceful, <laughs> and everyone gets along, um, and no one has to worry about. He did his job, right? Messiah definitely did his job. It's all peaceful. Yeah, now. yeah. You know, um, <laughs> well, Judas you Maccabeus. Know, he came back. He fixed everything. It's all good now. Well, it actually what and. and this is the last thing I'm going to say, and because it make you make per what you said makes perfect sense. Because if you're a Jew living in the first century and you're taught your whole life that the Messiah is coming, he's going to save us all. But all you read in your texts and your history books and all you know about is Israel got conquered by the Egyptians, Israel got conquered by the Babylonians, Israel got conquered by the Syrians, and then you're like, now the Romans are doing it. So you're, it's only natural for you to say, maybe the Messiah is supposed to die. Maybe, maybe like yeah. it's like a self reflection. To, yeah. For everyone, for for salvation, maybe the Messiah is supposed to just die, and that's yeah. And believing in this Messiah and being a martyr is what makes you su survive. Yeah, I, suffering for Christ is your lot. You know, one Peter four sixteen and one right. Enoch one o three four. You know, uh, it's just probably psychology. You're gonna have to be a martyr. Okay. I was just saying, there's probably a psychology behind that. Which, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, why policy makes sense of all this? Yeah, theology has to explain suffering, and if you're suffering all the time, well, you've got to find a way to explain it. And right. Deuteronomic theology says, well, you must have done something wrong, and Yahweh's punishing you. Enochic theology, it's going to get better. There's hope. You're suffering because you're right. And this is one of the major deviations from the Hebrew Bible. You know, uh, Christianity and Enoch, you're your uh, bad position, your suffering, it isn't because you did something wrong because you uh, betrayed a land deal with Yahweh. No, it's because you're doing it right. And the wicked are currently in power. That's why they're suffering. And that, that's a huge component in Enoch and in early Christianity throughout the New Testament. You know, it's right there in the Beatitudes we talked about. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, you know, blessed are the poor, you know, the these are people who don't have control of the Jerusalem temple. These are the Jews that were kicked out. These are the ones who were um, living in little, you know, hovels in Qumran on the banks of the Dead Sea. Like, can you imagine building your home in a cave on the Dead Sea? That had to be miserable. How did that? <laughs> how do you explain that? Right. Either you're being punished for being wicked or. You're doing it right, and the wicked are in power. That's why you're being punished. And that's what separate. That's one of the main things that separates the New Testament from the Old, 
and links it intrinsically with the Book of Enoch. Because the Book of Enoch is all about that. Wow. This has been amazing. This has been super fun. Uh, Definitely going to have you back on anytime you want, man. Um, Yeah. So real quick before we close out, Dragons and Genesis podcast. Type it in on YouTube. It'll pop right up. Subscribe. Hit the bell. All that stuff. Anything, anything, anywhere else we want to navigate people up while they're here? Uh, yeah, you can find me at facebook.com slash dragons of Genesis. You can look me up dragons of Genesis.com or just search dragons in Genesis wherever you get podcasts. Any podcast app, type it in. You'll see a big orange logo with a silhouette of Godzilla attacking Jerusalem. You can't awesome. miss it. It's an awesome logo, by the way. So, yeah, and uh, like I say, always. You have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you. Jesus.